Welcome to Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We are glad you're listening in on this Transforming Leadership series. Our guest today is Clint Gresham, former NFL long snapper and Super Bowl champ. We are discussing setbacks, which are seasons we will all encounter. How we have prepared for and respond in those seasons matter. Will they stop you in your tracks or be used for greater gain? After the episode, be sure to check out a Word in Season podcast.org and learn more about Somebody Cares. You can also download our free 30-day devotional. When you download now, you will receive Doug Stringer's weekly Monday morning Provoke-A-Thought emails with a challenging and encouraging message to start your week. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Well, welcome to another Wording Season uh, with Doug Stringer and friends. Today's Transform Leadership with Clint Gresham. Clint is a best-selling author, an international speaker, a member of the 2010 Seattle Seahawks. He was also part of the 2010 Seattle Seahawks All-Decade Team and a Super Bowl champion. He is an international speaker and author of the best-selling book, Becoming, Loving the Process to Wholeness. He is regarded as a leader of men and was an invaluable asset to the championship locker room. He also volunteers with Young Life and many other organizations, and I go on and on, but you can read it in the show notes and also on the original bio that we sent out to everyone. Clint and I have had the pleasure of meeting and uh, speaking at some men's conferences. Clint, great to have you on with us today. It's great to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. Man, I was looking forward to it, and obviously football season just started again, and so yeah, you know, I'm not as big a fan in sports as I used to be when I was younger, but you know, I still keep Same. up from time to time. You know, I was thinking about Gibor. Gibor is champion, warrior, hero. That's who God is. He's our mighty warrior. He's our mighty champion. But he is the El Gibor, the God of the champion. Reading through your book, Becoming, reminded me of that, that you kept that perspective through it all. Ultimately, the NFL wasn't your God, but it was something you enjoyed. You excelled at. Ultimately, you were the Gabor of the El Gabor. You became a champion because of the champion in you, which is God, the champion. Yeah, I was yeah. one time asked to speak at a chapel service uh, before uh, in a preseason game between Oakland and Dallas Cowboys. And so they called me in Houston. Oakland called and said, would you fly to Dallas and would you do our chapel before we play the Dallas Cowboys? And jokingly, I said to their chaplain, I said, only if I don't have to pray that you'll beat the Cowboy. Uh, I went up there. We had a great time that night. I got a message after the game saying, Doug, we, the, the message is like being at a good Texas barbecue. Your message to the guys was great. They're still talking about it, but we can never invite you back. I said, why is that? I think that game, they lost 50 something to like, you know, 13 or whatever it was. So, <laughs> but I challenged him. I said, look, there's life beyond the NFL. And I said, if you're not investing in that relationship with Christ now and investing in the things of character, then when you get off the field and after the NFL, it will be a memory of what used to be, but you'll have struggles in life in your future if you don't invest in the things that are most important now. And reading through your book, I really saw how you really uh, honed that home quite a bit. Before we get into your book, tell us a little about your story. I want to hear a couple of things. One is, what was your journey? How did you come to that place of becoming a Christian? And how did that help you get through all that you've gone through in challenges in life? My parents did a great job of um, fostering that in me. The beauty about growing up in Texas is that it's a lot like playing football. Like everybody goes to church. Everybody is involved. In football. My dad played football at the University of Texas, uh, 74, 5, and 6. He played with Earl Campbell. 
Um, I didn't have the grades to get into Texas because someone's got to be in the top 25% of their class. Um, <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Yeah, my parents did a great job of fostering that. And I would say that I've always been a seeker. I've always been somebody who wanted to know the truth, who wanted to grow, who wanted to get better. And a big part of that is my um, my football career. I'm fortunate to say that all of the coaches that I've had were national uh, coaches of the year. So I started with Oklahoma. I was there for a year. Bob Stoops was my coach. And then I transferred to TCU. And then my NFL career, I started with, with the Saints and then ended up with the Seahawks. I am fortunate to be able to say that I've had a lot of really incredible coaches speaking into my life. But as far as what was it that helped me get through all of that, I tried everything else and I knew that football was not going to be something that could give me the life that uh, I wanted it to give me. It's like, we know that as believers, you know, that your career or whatever it is that gives you a sense of significance can't be the thing that defines you. But ultimately you spend so much time on something. It's like where your heart is there, your treasure will be also. Um, we're inevitably going to tether some of our sense of worth to what we do. I feel fortunate that God got a hold of my life before I got into the NFL. I had a second cousin who um, he had an inner healing ministry, and I'd gone through a really difficult situation when I was in college. He was a guy who would just pick up the phone um, when I would call at you know, 10 o'clock at night and walk me through what the word says. And it was shortly after this period that I was introduced to a pretty intense discipleship program at a Foursquare church in Anaheim, California called The Rock, a pastor named Jerry Deerman. I had some time over the summer, and so I decided that I was going to go and take this discipleship class, and it was intense. It was really intense. You had to pray out loud uninterrupted for 10 minutes a day, read your Bible every day, journal on it every day, memorize scripture every week listen to three one-hour teachings every week, get to go to church twice a week, share your faith with a stranger, no more than two hours of secular media a week. And I was living with a family who both the husband and the wife were on staff at this church. And so they just kind of lived like that. And it basically took away every kind of worldly influence you could possibly have, flooded you with the word, and it changed my life. It radically, radically changed my life. I'm thankful because I was at a place where I needed God to show up in my life. God, that was in 2009. And I still feel like I am reaping fruit from that season of just concentrated. It's just me and the Lord here. And so that totally changed my perspective on, on everything, on my purpose, on why I was going to the NFL, what my time was going to look like there. And the NFL was super hard. It was really, really challenging. It, it took me to places emotionally where I didn't feel like I could do this much longer. But one thing that really taught me something was sort of this aimlessness that I would see a lot of guys that I was playing with. I mean, they're going out and, you know, going to Vegas on the weekends and spending 50 grand in a night just in partying. And as soon as somebody would walk into the locker room, I could kind of tell you which direction that they were going to go. And the thing about the NFL is that it's going to make you decide if you're on the fence, you got no chance. Peer pressure is too strong. The temptations are too strong. 
And so for me, I was living with five other guys and we were all young life leaders and four nights a week we're hosting Bible studies at our house with high school kids and going to lacrosse games and football games. I was sort of the chaplain of the high school football team. I would always go by and do the the chapel services. And um, I feel like that really tethered me to a sense of reality. The NFL is, is not real. It's not it's this little tiny world that is so out of touch with everything else. I would say that there's been a lot of things that have facilitated this ability to walk through storms in my life. And then now that I'm out of the NFL, my last season was 2015. I stayed ready for about probably eight months, and then I tore up my shoulder. I actually found out that I tore up my shoulder the day before the Seahawks called me, asked me to come back to play in the playoff game against the Lions in 2016, and I, I had to pass on it. It's interesting being at this place of talking about it for so long and now being forced to kind of confront that as as well, that, okay, where really is my identity? And this career is so different from, it's not even a career, it's a job. It's like I had my identity crisis 30 years before all of my peers, which is a gift in a lot of ways, because now I can really dig deep and, and be like, no, like this is who God says that I am. It has been a, an interesting journey, for sure. You also mentioned that you had gone through that intensive discipleship at a Foursquare church in California. Jack Hayford brought me into Foursquare 30-something years ago. I was already working. Wow. We were doing a lot of leadership things together, and he's become one of my mentors over the years. So I read his Bible every day. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's Spirit-Filled Life Bible. Yeah, I've got, I've got that as well. And in my book, Leadership Awakening, he actually wrote the forward to that. What a great example of consistency and leadership. Something you had said also, you integrated this in a lot of your conversation here. Even in your journey with the Lord, you actually had to deal with your identity crisis 30 years before your peers. And so many athletes that obviously you work with and many that I've worked with over the years really do go through an element of identity crisis after their pro days and their sports right. days. And you said in your book on becoming, I'm thankful God got a hold of my heart before I got in and into the NFL. I see so many young guys come into the league not knowing who they are. Some of the most insecure people I know are professional athletes. Let's address that a little bit because obviously all of us, and throughout your book, you talked about even relationships with men in your life and mentors and your father, stepfather. All of us look for affirmation, approval, and acceptance. When it comes to the things of this world, if we're looking to get our security in affirmation, approval, acceptance from the world, we'll always be disappointed. But we have one who never disappoints. Would you share a little bit that journey, how you came to recognize that and how? Because you became a leader of a, of a lot of these leaders in the locker room, working with these men, your peers, and even since then, speaking all over the world. How did you come to that reckoning that, look, playing the NFL was great, but that's not my identity. My identity is in the Lord. I mean, a big part of it was trying everything else. And we, there was a moment. So after we won the Super Bowl, we, we won on Sunday. We flew back on Monday. On Tuesday, we had all of our exit meetings, and then Wednesday was our Super Bowl parade. And there was like 1.2 million people in downtown Seattle. It was unbelievable. But on Tuesday at our exit meeting, so this is 48 hours after we've won the Super Bowl, somebody comes up to the front of the front of the team and says, you know, unless you win two Super Bowls, you haven't done anything. And I'm like, 
that's like the most offensive thing I've ever heard in my life. Like that is so disgusting. Here we are. You got 20 and 30 year old players. They've been working their entire life. Like I'd been playing football since I was six years old and it's nothing. I mean, I guess in a way it it is kind of meaningless in some ways, like it's, it's wonderful, but that really stuck with me. You could spend your entire life just chasing this again and again and again and again. And it's like, what was it that Tom Brady said? His favorite Super Bowl ring is the next one. <laughs> and, and I get that. Like, there is a place for that. But you've got to be so okay with who you are to be able to have that kind of mindset. Because most of us, it's going to become this hope deferred, making our heart sick kind of thing. I think that's the case for a lot of guys because I knew that beforehand I was able to shield myself somewhat. But like I was saying earlier, it is inevitable that we're going to put some of our sense of, of worth in, in what we do. And so it really comes back to where am I centering myself? And it's got to be something that I'm doing every single day with the Lord because a week goes by and I haven't read my Bible and I don't realize like how far I've drifted off from, oh yeah, like this is who God says that I am. It's not about my accomplishments because in a thousand years, it's going to be pretty irrelevant. To keeping that perspective, because I've always said perception isn't always the truth, but it is the truth to those who perceive it. The NFL had been good to you in the larger context because God had a greater plan and that it gave you a platform or a soapbox now to be able to minister to so many people. It gave you access to that, but you realize it wasn't the end to itself. It was a part of the journey to the next place that God has for you in your personal assignment. Yeah. And honestly, like sometimes it's hard for me to uh, accept that at times. I feel like most of the time I feel good about my career as a football player, my job as a a football player, and what I'm doing now and my family. Uh, But even on Sunday, I was watching a football game and I saw the Seahawks long snapper and I'm like, I could still do that. I can still do that. And it's uh, it, it's just sort of this continual acceptance of I trust that I am right where I'm supposed to be. If I let my mind start to drift and if I daydream a little bit about that, sometimes it, it can take me to a place that it, that is not healthy. Yeah, it's just this tension that you kind of have to live in sometimes. And I think it's just how, because I'm competitive too. <laughs> Like, uh, I, I, I want to win. I want to I want to do well. But it is a challenge for sure. Well, Dr. Evan Lewis Cole used to teach us that God did give an element of desire to win in all of us. And he called it sanctified ego. In other words, if it's not sanctified, then, of course, it becomes self-righteousness, self-absorption. It's arrogant, boastful, proud. If it's sanctified, then it's a, it, we can filter it through in humility to the Lord, who then gives us a confidence to become excel at what we do. In your book, you also talk about setbacks. In fact, you said, all of us are in process. All of us have setbacks. What causes joy to grow and fear to run is making the conscious choice to accept that the good times in life are God loving us and the tough times in life are God growing us. I thought, wow. What a great statement. You need both. That's right. And so you shared when you first got in the NFL, you had some setbacks. And it could have caused you to cower 
and not continue. But even when you went to the New Orleans Saints before you went on to Seattle, that was a major setback. Tell us about that process emotionally and mentally and and how you were able to get through that. Um, I was the only long snapper invited to the combine that year. And I sort of assumed that because I was that guy, I was going to be drafted. And it's obviously much simpler in terms of, okay, this is where God wants me when that decision is made for you by somebody deciding to draft you. I really wanted to play for the Texans when I was in high school. My, I grew up in Corpus Christi. My high school mascot was the Texan. Didn't work for other states, but it works here in Texas. <laughs> and the Texans called me in the fifth round after telling me the previous week that they were going to be drafting me. And they they call me and say, hey, we, we decided to go with another guy. So the fifth round ends, sixth round ends, seventh round ends. And I'm a free agent. And now I've got to figure out where I'm supposed to go. So I got on the phone with my second cousin. He's the guy that I, I dedicated my book to, actually, that guy that would pick up my call whenever I was needing help. We were praying through about where to go, and uh, I felt like the Lord told me it was New Orleans, even though in the natural that didn't make any sense. So I called up this special teams coach from the Texans and said, hey, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, I prayed. <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to go to New Orleans. So uh, I was competing with a guy who um, I think he was 38 years old. He was the long snapper there whenever I got there. The year before was the year that they won the Super Bowl. You know, after you win the Super Bowl, you're not trying to change a whole lot of things. And so I go in there and it was one of the most difficult seasons that I've, I've gone through. I felt super alone and isolated. It was difficult to make friends on the team. And, and, and even in the city, it's like I'm there at a hotel next to the airport by myself. I would get to work at eight and leave at noon or so. And then I've got the rest of the day. The rest of the day, I just was spending time with the Lord and I would put on uh, on my laptop the live stream of the International House of Prayer. And I just walk around in my hotel room. It was two months, two, three months like that. And then so training camp starts back up and I got cut on the first day of training camp. And so I drive back home to Fort Worth and I'm thinking what is going to happen now. And uh, 24 hours later, I got a call from the Seahawks and they told me that they'd claimed my contract. So I fly up to Seattle and we actually ended up being the only team in NFL history to win our division with a losing record that year, which is so hilarious. Uh, and then the team that we beat in the first round of the playoffs was the Saints, the team that cut me. Wow. Like vengeance is mine, says good. the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that was just a real perfect example of trusting God in the midst of a process that doesn't make any sense. And it was you know, it, it's easy when the path is is like I'm I'm here, but now I'm here. It's like in the same. It's in the same lane. It's challenging for us whenever the path is in a completely different lane, and whenever we have things that don't go our way, or disappointments, or whatever it is. Um, that time that I had of a couple of months of just being with the Lord reminds me that whenever things come up in my life that are unexpected that whatever it's going to be, I can go back to that place and trust that God has done this before and he'll do it again and he'll do it again. And all I have to do is just rest in that. And as a guy who is a little bit type A and, you know, driven and wants to accomplish, 
it's like the perfect thing for me in, in becoming a, a well-balanced person because it takes it out of our hands and now we have to just rest in that. Christopher Daigle on the chat said he read your article about the day you were cut called The Worst Breakup. <laughs> about the stomach drop feeling when your GM called it. So anyway, he says, I can relate to gut dropping situations and I'm sure many can. And he said, how would you encourage someone who has fallen in the call of God in their life to overcome the gut drop feeling of disappointment? It almost is like the proportion of how big that drop in our gut feels is proportionate to what God wants to do in our life. And we're all going to have those moments and we're not going to know what to do. And it's so cliche, but leaning in and trusting God, that's really it. And we have to walk that out. That moment for me, when I wrote that article, um, I kind of regret writing it actually, just because I almost feel like I was too vulnerable, (laughs) but it was, it was, it was what I was going through and it was, it was how I was able to process it. One thing that I think a lot about is how, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, like he knew that he was going to do that. He walks in, his sister, Lazarus's sister says, if you were here, you wouldn't have died. And it says, Jesus wept. And I think about like, Jesus didn't, he didn't have to weep, you know, like he already knew what he was going to do, but he leaned into those emotions and he cried and he felt that. And it was almost like that experience of emotions and processing it and grieving it propelled him into being able to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. For men, especially having the courage to also do that, where whatever it is that made that your heart sink into your feet, experiencing that and not running from it has been the most transformational thing in my life. And anytime I try and stuff down whatever emotion it is, it could be heartache, it could be joy. Um, Anytime I'm trying to push emotions away that I don't feel totally safe experiencing or expressing with, with people, that's usually where I find myself starting to not get in a good space. When I was reading your book and even about that moment, how a circumstance at the moment can be that gut dropping moment, but yet God is already working out a plan beyond the disappointment. It turns mm-hmm. out that you would end up being on a Super Bowl team. And as you said, you already you got to beat the team, New Orleans Saints, that just cut you. So very satisfying. we live our moments on a disappointment and we live there rather than realizing God takes us beyond those places because he has a greater plan. Uh, recently, I was doing teaching and wrote on synchronicity, which is the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related, but have no discernible causal connection. And I think about how God in his providence can do things that in multiple facets at the exact same time that we think it's about that one moment, but he's already working things out for us and all these other things are in motion that we don't see in his infinite wisdom. And ultimately, you found great joy and you found a great platform at a, at a disappointing moment. In mm-hmm. your book, also, you talk about another setback, actually a very uh, gut-dropping moment where you were playing. In fact, it was in uh, Chapter 3 on Jailbreak in your book. And it says, as I ran out from the first punt snap of the game, and this was in 2016 when you played the Vikings. 
And, uh, and I have a good, I have a great friend. He he's on my advisory yeah. board. He used to play for the Vikings, by the way. Oh, nice. Bishop Allen Rice. He played for Baylor and then the Vikings. But he says, as I ran out, you said, as you ran out for the first snap of the game, I could hardly feel my hands. And you talk about how it was the cold, one of the coldest days ever in a game. And, uh, and so you didn't do the snap well, but you still won the game. But how the media and others just crucified you. And then even at, the, at the, your team meeting the next day, you were like being scolded and publicly humiliated in front of the team yeah. because of that. That had to be a very, uh, a very, uh, another reminder of our hope is in the Lord and it's not in man, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I mean, I know there's, this has been said before, but if you live for the praise of people, you're going to just die over their criticism. And so it was the third coldest game in NFL history. It was minus six degrees, but the wind chill was minus 20, 26 degrees. Uh, the the moisture in my breath was actually freezing my eyelashes together, and so I, I run out there and it's our uh, uh, I think it was our the first playoff game of that year, and I feel like I'm holding on to a, a wet ice cube and it was uh, it was not a good snap and so it slips out of my hands and our punter tries to field it and he tries to run with the ball. He ends up running directly into the back of me and tries to jump over me. It was a total disaster. He broke his nose. Um, oh and I, I remember looking up at the sidelines and like all these Seahawks fans, all of the other players and coaches, and they're just like, we're so disappointed in you. <laughs> and it was like, oh, man. Okay, but it doesn't matter what they think about me. <laughs> And having to, to walk that out right there in that moment. And um, I was somebody who needed a lot of affirmation when I was younger. And I was a pretty sensitive guy. And so, man, all of these moments that we have in our lives that, you know, we don't anticipate coming in to test what's in our heart. And even in that moment, remembering that, okay, this is going to be okay. If God be for me, who can be against me? Like truly, if God is for me, it doesn't matter what all these people think about me. And promotion doesn't come from the east, the west, or the south, but God is the judge. He sets up one and he puts down another. And so learning that is, it's easy to quote, but whenever we're in it, it's like, oh, this is the moment that this was for. This was why I started putting this into my heart for this moment. I was thinking and reading that and thinking about this. How many times in life do we think people really care about us or they say they love us? It's only when we perform to their expectations that all of a sudden we're accepted. But yet when we disappoint, where are the friends? They're, they're gone. Where are the people that said they cared about? They're gone. That's where I think for me, it's the intentionality of knowing my security is in the Lord, that he is the one that will never disappoint. And that at the end of the day, there is a limited group of people that are there for you no matter what. And that's where true friendships come. The, I always said that kingdom of God's built on relationships, first with God, then with one another. And the degree of influence that we have or will leave to the next generation is determined on the degree or level of those relationships with God and with one another. And relationships define our destiny. So at the end of the day, there are so many different layers of friendships, acquaintances, and so on. But yet there's a very few that really that are there for you no matter what. And that's where God is. God is always there for us. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. Yeah. He doesn't disappoint. 
And I think in moments like that, I know we've all experienced moments like that, embarrassment. And I remember one time, you know, I was a wrestler and baseball player, played football only because our football team needed a defensive safety. And I was the smallest guy in the league. And they pulled me up from junior varsity into the varsity team. I was not a defensive safety, but I'm the smallest guy in the league. And so these guys were loving it coming running over me, right? Dragged me for 15 yards. They called me the shoestring tackler. But because uh, I wouldn't let go, I was crazy enough. But I remember one time my stepfather, and thank God I was able to help lead him to the Lord. He's with the Lord now. But at the time, he was an atheist, an alcoholic, and he was cursing me out because I didn't play good enough. Or when I was in baseball, I was varsity and sophomore in baseball, second base, first baseman, I mean, second baseman starter. But because I didn't do a double play fast enough or good enough, he would curse me out in the stands in front of all my friends. And I remember the pain of that. Those are those those moments, those gut-dropping moments where you feel like he's embarrassing me in front of my friends, my peers. But through that process, I realized that I'm never going to succeed in life if I look at moments. I have to look to the Lord. And even when, though I didn't know the Lord, I had an element of understanding the Lord. So I knew that my acceptance, my approval, uh, my affirmation was not going to come in, in an individual it had to come something in something deeper in me and ultimately the relationship with the Lord. And I'm, that's what I love about your book and love about you and the times I've heard you speak is that you've been able to keep that perspective, even though you live realities of life. It's not like you're living in this, you know, this uh, this dome. You really do live out life like the rest of us, but you learn to apply those principles at times like this. Yeah. And aren't I lucky, <laughs> you know? This is what God said would happen. Like we are going to face challenges in our life. And this is why he left us his word. This is why he left us the Holy Spirit to come and live in us, to remind us that uh, no matter what we go through, that God is for us. Whenever people speak evil of us, you know, God is will protect us and guide us and lead us. And so I feel like no matter what it is that that we all go through. I love what you were saying about how there's there's only a few people that really know you like that. And having covenant-level friendships, friendships with people that I have from a, an intimacy perspective as far as what people, what I let people see inside of me, um, I only have a few of those. I mean, I, I, I live pretty candidly and I'm pretty open with uh, what I'm going through, but man, like I've got a Bible study that I meet up with these guys every, every Tuesday morning, actually, I was, I was with them this morning and we were talking about different storms that we have going on in our lives and things that we're all fighting and like trying to raise kids and love our wives and be good at our jobs and pay bills, keep the house clean. I mean, there's just, there's always stuff going on in front of you. And that has been invaluable for me to be able to have those kind of relationships to bounce these things off of other people with like the season that I had whenever I was in new Orleans, like it was great in a lot of ways. I think my fear of letting people know me made it more challenging than it had to be. It was a very strange situation because I didn't know anybody in new Orleans, but uh, I do think that I made it more challenging on myself by not putting myself out there as, as much as I probably needed to. Once I started living with all of these uh, young life leaders in Seattle, that was a, that was a game changer for me because it showed me the, 
the value of letting other people see who you are, just the the beauty of vulnerability because it, it sets us free. You keep bringing it back to this place of identity, this place of security and who you are in the Lord. And you've had to draw from that well. It's a great reminder to all of us. You know, there's been setbacks you've had to overcome, but all of us have had to have those moments, unexpected detours in our lives and and the place of having to overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and some real challenging times aside of everyday living. Has there been something in your life that you've had to really hold on to the horns of the altar where you've had to overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony? There's something that you remember in your life that would help us to also be able to do the same. Yeah, a, a major setback, you know, for me, for example, in 2015, I mean, I'm in the middle of ministering, traveling all over, and I found out that I had stage four B-cell lymphoma cancer. That mm-hmm. was something that was totally unexpected, an unexpected detour. And yet in that moment, I had to determine that God didn't do it to me and that no matter what, it wasn't going to become about, about me. I turned it into a place of intercession. I turned it into a place of that by the grace of God, I was going to continue. If it had one day left or a or hundred more years left, I wanted to live every day as under the Lord. Even though I was going through it, had to go through the chemo, the whole bit, I had to make that determination. I had to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, knowing who my Lord was. And secondly, I had to make this into the word of my testimony in the midst of it. How did your that affect your language and how you spoke about your situation? Well, for me, I guess I'm being interviewed now on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just <laughs> I just thought, think that that's really interesting. Well, actually, my wife wrote her story about our journey uh, called God Did Not Do This to Me in her mm-hmm. book. And it really was about watching me live through that and that the day we found out, I left the house and spent a couple, three hours in the parking lot of a grocery store. For those that are in Texas, it was at HEB. Uh, and uh, I just talked to God. I cried. Emotions, as you said, you have to press into those emotions and 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 tap into those. And so I went home, sat down with my mother-in-law who lives with us and my wife and daughter. We took communion. And I said, first of all, God did not do this to me. I had to know that. I had to hold on to that promise Yeah. to keep my sanity. Number two, if God did not do this to me, then we cannot let it become about me. I don't want to live my life about this thing that's attacking me. And yeah. the third thing that I want to make sure if the God didn't do it to me, it doesn't belong to me, then it can't be about me, then let's turn it into a ministry that we did not ask for, but it has become a ministry nonetheless. So we determined that even going to MD Anderson or wherever I was going to go, that uh, every person, every technician, every person drawing blood, every doctor, every nurse, every PA, uh, people that were alone on, and by themselves there at the hospital, I was going to be directed to them and ner- learn how to minister to them out of my own need. Mm. And then by the grace of God, that uh, all the obligations I had uh, in prayer gatherings all across the country and other events that we were doing and disaster relief, that I was going to continue by the grace of God. And by the grace God granted me, I was going to continue to do every one of them if if I could. Yeah, I didn't want to sit in my chair and have a pity party and then I, then I lose. I, the devil wins. Right. But if I could take every day knowing that every day was a good day because I serve a great God, but some days were better good days than others. So I had to determine that I was going to make sure my mind, in fact, it blew people away. It became a test. I'd be going to the gym with a pick line. And my, I lost my hair going to the gym. People that would never even recognize me walk up and say, dude, you, 
are you fighting cancer? I say, they go, what are you doing here? I said, look, I'm not going to let this thing determine my life. And so I was in the, I couldn't do what I used to do. I couldn't bench what I used to do. And it, but I was going to still be there to make sure my mind was clear. So this thing didn't beat me. Mm. And so that's how I had to deal with it. And my wife wrote a great book about it, about watching me live out the principles I had preached. And uh, the greatest testament really is, you know, they always say, you know, if you want to know about somebody, ask their wife, right? If you're asking, talking about guys. So it, it really, I couldn't even read her manuscript initially because I just brought back a lot of emotions. Sure. And, uh, but I finally read it when she had it published and wrote an endorsement for it. But uh, it really is about keeping focus, knowing God's word, leaning in and, uh, and holding on to his promises. I love that. I, when I think about the word decide, that's a kill word. It's like suicide, pesticide, herbicide, whatever it is. And, you know, making the decision and deciding it's the death to other options. It's like I am deciding that this is how I'm going to view this situation. And this is how I'm going to do it. And so the other options, they fade away. That's not even in my periphery. For me, I've walked through similar seasons of that with uh, with mental health. I, I did an I Am Second video with them about mental health. And I think, I mean, I grew up Episcopalian, and then I was in a, a charismatic stream, and I really didn't have a great understanding of, of mental health and, and the physical element of that and, and what it does to our brains. And, and then especially with football players, you know, you have guys with CTE. In fact, there was a guy that I played football with who was this kind, uh, soft-spoken guy. I mean, just a, a beautiful soul. And this is, this is so horrible. Um, he got uh, addicted to painkillers. His doctor wouldn't prescribe him anymore. And so he went and he killed his doctor. And I think he killed his family too. And I knew him. That wasn't him. But concussions, I mean, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is what CTE stands for. It changes our brain and it changes the way that we see situations. And it it totally messed him up. And then the drugs didn't, didn't help either. And so um, for me, I've walked through seasons of just absolutely crippling depression where it's like, I don't even have the energy to like brush my teeth or put my clothes on. In moments like that, I come back to the Lord and I ask him to give me strength to be able to do at least one thing that is healthy for me today. <laughs> and I mean, th- this is, this is like so personal right now. I mean, something is as simple as spending time, spending like good quality time with my daughter and like these small little wins, like they, they start to accumulate and it, it really comes back to, if I want to get out of a situation that I'm in, I need to go back and keep doing the things that I was doing that kept me out of the situation in the first place. Walking through seasons of depression would be what that is for me and um, trusting God in the midst of it and then continuing to do those things that are making deposits into my soul because I know that they accumulate and I know that they're exponential. And so when I can remember that and keep that close to my heart, I find myself in a place where I don't want to say it's tolerable, but there's a purpose to it in a sense. For those that want to look at that video, I am second. 
that Clint Gresham talked about, it's on the link. And we'll make sure make that available also on the show notes of the podcast. Clint, I know you spent a lot of time with us today. I just thank you so much for being candid with us, being transparent, sharing your heart. I loved your book, Becoming. I want to encourage everybody to get a copy of Becoming. There's so many principles here that you can hold on to that I think would apply to all of us, not just an athlete, but for all of us. Uh, One of the things I really appreciated also, Clint, is that in your biographical sketch that you sent us, you put, uh, when you're not traveling, you love being at home in Dallas uh, with your bride, Maddie, children, Zoe and West, and German short hair pointer bear. and uh, Baby boy. Yeah, so I just thank you so much for keeping it real, keeping us grounded. I thank God that God's given you the platform that he's given you. I pray to continue to expand that platform because so many people need to be encouraged and hear hear the story and the process because every one of us has a story. And I've always said that those who tell the story define the narrative and create mm-hmm. the history. So we can let other people tell our story or we can tell the story of the Lord in our journey, the good, bad, and the ugly, because ultimately... All things work together for the good. Those that love God are called according to his purpose. So thank you for taking your life experiences, making them available for the rest of us to glean and learn from, and uh, and for the, the life example that you are for the Lord as a husband, a father, uh, and that we can all share those uh, those memories and share those principles you've taught us. So thank you so much. Amen. Is there any final words you'd like to share before you pray for us? Man, lean into, lean into life. Um, you know, in this COVID situation, it's like the world was already isolated and then, okay, now don't leave your house. (laughs) And now everybody is a potential walking murderer. It's crazy. Step into life, step into community, step into relationships and get off technology as much as you can, like unhealthy technology, like social media is not a good thing. It's, it, it has a purpose obviously, but, um, my wife and I, we challenged each other just we need to get away from this because it's a time bandit first of all but it also is it's not helping me become a better man it's wasting my time and so i would rather disconnect from that and engage with real relationships with people like i had at my bible study this morning and um we've got another couples one that we go to later and we just need to continue to be with other people around other people because it's like god god heals us and restores us through his people and i have personally found it's a rare thing to feel fully integrated when i'm trying to do it by myself and so the more that i can step out and live open with others the better i am well, Jan Tennyson said, who's founder of Dare to Dream and wrote the book, Dare to Dream. Thank you so much, Clint. Continue to dare to dream. Clint, yeah. why don't you pray? And then we're going to pray for you and continue, to, uh, God, to continue to open doors for you to, to share your message. Yeah. Jesus, thank you so much for this time that we could come and, uh, and hear about who you are and hear stories and testimonies about what you've done and what you're continuing to do. Lord, I pray for all of us here. Pray for everybody who is listening, God, that we would be filled with courage, that we would make the decision to step into what you have for us, Lord, that uh, as the enemy tries to isolate us and discourage us and to separate us, God, that you would fill us with your supernatural strength to step back into community, to be with others, uh, to live open and honest and, and to walk in health. Um, 
physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all of it, God. Let us be integrated people, people of your word, people of your spirit. We bless you, Lord. And thank you for this time. Amen. Amen. Uh, Pastor Jeff McGee, why don't you pray for Clint and his family and for the greater opportunities of platform for him to continue to minister. Father, we are so blessed today by Clint and what he shared. And thank you for his openness and his vulnerability. And Lord, thank you for the assignments that you give to him and to his family. Lord, today as a group, we speak a blessing to our brother. Lord, we ask you to continue to grow him, protect him. Father, we ask you to continue to resource him. And, and Lord, we thank you for the divine appointments that you've set up for him. Thank you for his understanding of community, communing with you and communing with your community. And Father, we pray that his heart life message would be uh, contagious to more and more people. It's so impactful. So Lord, we speak a blessing over our brother. We speak fresh anointing over our brother. Father, we ask you for the breakthroughs that he's asking for. We add our agreement and our prayers with those. And Lord, as a group, we just release the blessing of the Lord upon Clint and his family. And thank you for his life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Head over now to a wordinseasonpodcast.org and let us know how we're doing by taking a quick survey. If you need prayer today, reach out to prayer at somebodycares.org or you can call or text our 24-hour Somebody Cares America prayer line, 855-459-CARE. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.